This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here. I've got uh, fellow app nerds, John Beeler, Graham Williams. We have an awesome program today. A uh, little bit here, we'll be talking with Dr. Sleep. If you have a wearable uh, for tracking your fitness, many of them, including Fitbit, especially Fitbits, can track your sleep as well to uh, give you information on, on how to sleep better. You're rocking two Apple Watches though, right? Yes, I've got three, actually. <laughs> but I have to keep switching them because the battery. Right. You know, if I want to track my sleep. Yeah. Not Steven. Well, no. Apple bought Bennett a little while back, right? Yeah. They've got that sensor. I want to get one of those. Okay, before we get to uh, some of that, let's talk about some of the app news. Uh, a big app I use when I'm traveling is Uber. One day, one sweet day, it'll be available in Vancouver, uh, but not soon, I don't think. Uh, they released some statistics on sexual assaults over the past two years and between 2017 and 2018 uh there were almost uh almost six thousand sexual assaults between uber drivers and uber riders that's kind of horrifying yeah i wonder what the stats were for taxi drivers though well that's really the question right yeah that's harder right like how do you aggregate all that yeah at least uber is one central company that can uh, to handle all that. So it's not just drivers. Uh, it's riders attacking the drivers as well, which is crazy. So 45% uh, were drivers who reported riders as the attackers. So really what we have is just bad people. Yeah. Can, yeah. We, can we just maybe get everyone to agree not to sexually assault other people? Is that maybe not? Okay. They had uh, over 2.3 billion US-based rides from 2017 through 2018. Yeah, but I mean, 6,000 out of 2.3 billion, we're looking at a fraction of a percent. I mean, even one is too many. Let's, let's be perfectly clear about that. Yeah. And Uber has taken some steps to try to address this, right? Like when you fire up the app, you have the ability to share your ETA with the people that you're talking to. You can actually report directly to sort of Uber central commands uh, if you feel unsafe, uh, and you have the ability to, uh, to, to chat with support uh, in real time. Now, I mean, these things are probably happening very, very quickly. Uh, so that's, you know, you want to feel like if you are getting into a vehicle, you're going to be safe. And uh, that really doesn't matter if you're the driver or the passenger. There's sort of an implicit trust here. So it's incredibly disappointing that some people out there are taking advantage of the situation. But what do you do here? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we stop this? Well, so Uber's uh, trying to, to do some things. Uh, they've got a few safety features already in their app, uh, a 911 button and ride check if your car stays in one spot for too long. And they've got other features coming like texting 911 uh, and many others. Uh, they say that they're going to have all Uber drivers complete a sexual misconduct education course. Uh, and Lyft is actually having all their drivers uh, complete that by December 15th. Oh, that's good. I mean, then the, here's the thing. It sounds like they're not trying to, to hide the data, which, yeah. you know, well done Uber and Lyft on that one. And they're taking some common sense steps to see if they can, one, educate people about it, and two, uh, help people deal with it if it is happening. It's still kind of freaky. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, so, but anyway, I, I'm glad they're publishing these things. And, uh, ugh, you know, I can see why some of the politicians are concerned about overall safety. For sure. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, I've used the cater service here in Vancouver, which is actually sort of ride sharing. Not anymore. Uh, patched up with taxis. And yet uh, a couple Saturdays ago, that morning, I got a message saying that they were ceasing operations as they got ready for uh, ride hailing. Yeah. Uh, which is really inconvenient because I'd actually planned to use them that night. A little bit of warning would have been nice cater. Well, apparently they're coming back when ride 
sharing is in full effect. They, they said two weeks, so yeah. I don't know if that was ambitious or not, but uh, here we go. Uh, quickly here, quitting Facebook will soon be easier with Apple-backed photo export tool. Uh, so Facebook uh, is developing tools that will allow you to transfer some of your data. This is part of a, an open source uh, program called the Data Data Transfer Protocol. Uh, some big companies that are involved with that would include Facebook, uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter. So uh, Google has launched a, uh, I guess, some software that allow you to transfer all of your, or sorry, Facebook has uh, launched a tool that allows you to transfer Facebook photos over to Google Photos. Looks mm. like Apple's getting into that game as well. That's great. I'm going to do this the moment that it's out because there are photos that I've had there since 2007, 2008. And uh, actually extracting them is difficult. You can download all of your Facebook data, but it's kind of a mess of XML and metadata, right? Right. And and being able to go in there and just slurp them all down as opposed to having to go in one at a time. Yes. Like, yeah, 14 elbows. clicks. Yeah. I buy Facebook. When we come back from the break here on the App Show, we're going to be talking talking to Dr. Sleep. If you've got a Fitbit, you'll want to stay tuned for this because uh, we've got some great information on how you can use your Fitbit to track your sleep every night and uh, use that information for good and not evil. Uh, and later on the program, we'll be uh, taking your uh, app-related questions as well. You're listening to the App Show here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. Fitbit. What do you think when I say that? Tracking fitness. Yes, they're uh, one of the best known uh, wearable brands uh, out there. They've been around for a number of years now. Uh, they make all kinds of wearables uh, for tracking everything from your uh, step counts, uh, like when you're running, jogging, or even walking, uh, and also heart rate uh, monitors built into a lot of them now. But what about sleep? Important. Very important. Well, uh, Fitbits actually track sleep as well. On the line, uh, we've got a sleep expert uh, from Fitbit. He's the lead uh, sleep researcher there. His name is Dr. Connor Hinehan. Did I get that right? Yes, perfect. Thank you. Excellent. I wanted to get you on the line because, uh, you know, when we look at a lot of these wearables uh, that are in the market uh, today, uh, we just think about fitness tracking. But, you know, a lot of them, including your Fitbits, uh, actually track sleep as well. How important is it for people to know how well they're sleeping? First, uh, thanks, Mike and John, for having us on. Really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, it's a great question. What Fitbit is trying to do ultimately is to help everyone in the world live a healthier life. And health has a lot of different components, but the really key ones, we talk about exercise, which is the first thing that came to your mind with fitness. But if you think about it, nutrition, sleep, and your mental well-being are equally important contributors to your overall health. So that's why Fitbit from the very beginning has had a holistic vision of trying to help people live healthier lives. And sleep is a very key component of the vision that we have for people to try and help them uh, understand themselves and move towards better habits, healthier habits for, for their overall wellness. Uh, so that's, you know, sleep is, sleep is critical from that point of view. Uh, it might be worth saying a little bit about sort of the history and how I got involved here. So firstly, uh, Fitbit's been around 12 years. Uh, it actually, uh, sleep was very early in its, in its uh, development as a company. So even some of our earliest devices had uh, some basic sleep tracking capability. And I joined Fitbit four and a half years ago to really push the sleep tracking and the sleep programs to an even higher level than they were previously. Uh, my own background is a sort of biomedical engineering. So I came out of a sort of medical field and a research field. Uh, and that was very important to Fitbit as a company, have a very scientific and very rigorous development process. So the company before Fitbit that I worked with was actually a medical device company that helps treat sleep apnea. 
So I've been deep in the area of sleep for about 15 to 20 years of my career at this point. And the first thing I got given when I came to Fitbit was, you know, we, we, we already have this basic sleep tracking, which decides whether you're asleep or awake. Uh, but can you please improve it uh, so we can give deeper and more meaningful information to our users? So one of the first uh, features we developed when I was here was the ability to track sleep stages, which is the various components of your sleep, whether you're in deep sleep, REM sleep, wake, or light sleep. Um, I'll pause for a moment just in case I'm bringing down an avenue you don't want to go, but I can talk to you a little bit more about the importance of the various stages of sleep and then how that feeds into your overall health and wellness. Yeah, no, I'd be interested in, in that. I mean, how is it actually tracking the different stages? Sure. So one of the things that, that's been known for a long time and just generally is uh, when you're in different stages of sleep, your brain waves change. But a part of that is also your autonomic system changes. So that's the nerves inside your body, which are controlling your heart rate, your breathing, your digestion. So very specifically, uh, your heart rate variability changes. So how quickly your heart beats, this, how, you know, sometimes you have a heartbeat which is exactly on a regular rhythm, other times it changes rapidly, uh, for example, when you're dreaming. So what we did in Fitbit is we can measure every single heartbeat you have while you sleep using a optical sensor. So there's a little blip of light that gets changed every heartbeat. And from that, we can then construct the series of heart rate timing, and then we can see the variation of your heart rate. When you're in deep sleep, your breathing is very regular, your heart rate is very regular. So we can detect that regularity pattern. When you go into a REM, which is the dreaming state of sleep, we can see the variation that dreaming causes. But when you're dreaming, you're effectively acting as if you're awake, but without actually moving, but your heart rate is, is responding almost as if you're awake. So there's a lot more variation. So we developed a machine learning algorithm that basically recognizes the different patterns of heart rate, combine them with the different patterns of movements on the stage of sleep, and then came up with this overall system for recognizing sleep stages. How, how accurate is that? Yeah, so and we did a lot of testing against the gold standard in sleep labs. So we partnered with some sleep labs here in California. Uh, so the overall accuracy, it, there's a very very uh, obscure uh, statistic called kappa, which is basically how much better do we do, to, do, do we do than chance. We do a lot better than just guessing randomly. Uh, but overall, it it's actually means we label the epochs about 70% correct, which never sounds very impressive. But if you actually take two human scores, uh, given the same data with all the brain waves and everything, they get about 80 to 85 percent in many cases. So it's actually uh, it was actually uh, the best um, uh, performance of any system that we could see at that time in the world. And remember that we're just looking at the wrists. We're not looking at your brain waves. We're not looking at breathing patterns. We have a, you know we have to work with what we have on the wrist. And so, why is it important for people to understand the different? Uh uh, parts of the sleep process and how can that help them knowing that? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the physiology is basically when you're in deep sleep, you're, you're most likely to get the physical restoration. So for example, human growth hormone, which is what repairs your, your muscles at night, is mo- it's secreted the most while you're in deep sleep. Uh, similarly for REM sleep, there's a lot of work which shown that when you have REM sleep, it's correlated with your memory formation. So in general, having a, 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 the right amount or a good amount of deep sleep and REM sleep is associated with restorative sleep for your physical and mental well-being. And there are things we can do that kind of uh, distract from that. So for example, obviously, if you just don't give yourself enough time to sleep, you're not going to get as much sleep as you need. That's the simplest thing. 
But then there are more subtle things, or not so subtle. Alcohol tends to disrupt your sleep patterns, so you might get into deep sleep quickly, but then later in the night, you lose a lot of your, your uh, potential sleep. You get a much more fragmented sleep. Uh, caffeine can keep you awake longer and change the, the distribution of sleep stages you get. So there are things we can do in our lifestyle, most of which we're probably fairly aware of, but which, which can disrupt our, uh, our sleep stages and our sleep cycles. How much, how much deep sleep should someone get a night? Yeah, so uh, it, it depends a little bit on your age and your gender. Uh, so mostly age is the main effect. So if you're, uh, say, in your 20s, you might be getting sort of 20, 25% deep sleep. As we age, it tends to get a bit less. So for, say, uh, say a man or woman in their 70s, they might be down between 5 and 10%. Uh, so that's, that's a natural part of just what happens as the brain ages. Uh, it's also, I mean, there is a lot of nurture variability. There might be some people for whom, you know, getting 25% every night is normal. There might be other people from getting 8% every night is normal. But those are the, the indicative ranges that doctors look at. What about naps? <laughs> oh, yeah. Naps is a great source of controversy in sleep medicine. Uh, naps are great. They're good for you and they're bad for you. If you sleep uh, too late in the day, uh, so if you decide to have a nap, say, at 7 o'clock, in the evening, you lie down, sleep for an hour, just chances are it's going to actually disrupt your drive to sleep later on. So when you go to bed at midnight, you probably won't fall asleep. So most sleep doctors recommend not, not napping, say, after 4 p.m. But earlier in the day, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of benefits, uh, particularly if it's a shortish nap, so 30 to 40 minutes max. You don't really want to get into the full deep sleep stages because when you wake up from that, you tend to feel very groggy. And again, it tends to reduce your sleep drive. We're talking uh, with uh, a sleep expert. His name's uh, Dr. Connor Hennig. Hennig. I can't even pronounce it properly. <laughs> Dr. Sleep. <laughs> Hennigan. Is that correct? I'm, I'm sorry for mispronouncing. Um, so I have another question. Uh, yesterday... I wasn't feeling too well, and uh, I was on the couch watching TV most of the afternoon, binge-watching uh, a few shows, and I think I was near a, a comatose state. Can it de- determine the difference between sleep and me just kind of not moving uh, a single muscle and, and binge-watching TV on a, on a rainy <laughs> afternoon? Uh, I mean, that, that's, that is a, that's the challenging technology question. Uh, for sure, even when you're kind of watching TV, te- people do tend and practice to twitch a little bit more than when they're actually asleep. Um, likewise, your heart rate is probably not going to be quite the same regularity as when you're truly asleep. But the interesting thing is there's what's called stage one sleep, which we're all familiar with, which is where you're not actually quite sure if you're asleep or not, and it's a natural transition to sleep. And that's a very hard phase of sleep for anybody to pick up, even with the brainwave patterns. That's the one that the sleep labs don't get right most of the time. And it's possible that when you're, you know, sometimes when you're watching, depending on what you're watching, you know, you could be drifting in and out of that stage one sleep if it's, if it's not very engaging. I, I guess the one good thing about Fitbit, uh, John, compared to some of the other uh, fitness trackers out there is the battery life uh, on, on them. That would be important <laughs> if you want to use your Fitbit during the day and then track sleep as well. Absolutely. And that's the big thing, you know, I'll be honest, I have an Apple Watch. I don't use it for sleep tracking because A, there is no native sleep tracking and I put it on my charger every night. I know Steven who has a Fitbit and loves it. He gets like weeks of battery life with his <laughs> device. So if that's really important to you, I think that's definitely the way to go and maybe I'll get a Fitbit just for my sleep tracking. I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Where can people find out more information? 
I guess go to www.fitbit.com would be a good place to start. Well, thanks uh, for coming on the program. Uh, looking forward to uh, looking at Stephen's sleep information here, <laughs> making sure yeah. he's getting enough. Anytime you want to find out more, we're delighted to help out. Thank you very thanks much. Thanks so much for the opportunity. We come back from the rake. Uh, more apps to talk about here on the App Show. Back after this. You are back with the App Show. Mike Eggerbo here with John Beeler. Let's talk about uh, STEM. Uh, for those that don't know what that means, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, the I like STEAM. STEAM? Yeah, I like to throw art in there too. Be creative. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, especially uh, in, uh, you know, a lot of Canadian cities like Vancouver, for example, there are uh, a lot of tech companies, uh, a lot of programmers, uh, video game companies. But uh, is it easy for women to break into these uh, industries? Well, studies have shown that typically that's not the case. Uh, it's predominantly a, a male-dominated industry. Obviously, we're trying to... Uh, close that gender gap uh, in, in many ways. Well, uh, we're going to talk with uh, an interesting uh, guest. Her name is Alison Wynn. She's a research associate uh, at Stanford's VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab. And they did a study basically uh, rec- uh, going to 84 recruiting sessions at uh, elite West Coast universities to see if they were connecting with women uh, or not. Thanks for joining us, Alison. Sure. Thank you for having me. So, your group uh, went to 84 recruiting sessions, which must have been a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> were they reaching women? What was your overall? Uh... They were, yeah, they were not, uh, not as effectively as they could have been. Um, so they, they often had a few different things that research has shown really deter women and, and really a lot of different people. Um, so these are things like lacking role models, um, lacking diverse role models. It was mostly white men. Uh, doing the presenting. And even when women were present in the sessions, they often weren't doing the content presenting. So uh, women might be there setting up the food or handing out the t-shirts, but they weren't presenting the core technical content, which really sends a signal to students about what kinds of people succeed at these companies. Um, But then there were also sort of more shocking examples of things that were um, inappropriate or might deter women from being interested in your company. Things like showing, um, pornography and prostitution um, references on your slides or in your content, uh, you know, kind of making offhand jokes that were really inappropriate and could signal to women that they're not going to be, uh, you know, safe and included in, at your company. Prostitution and, and pornography references? Are you kidding me? I hope I'm allowed to say these things oh, on yeah, the radio. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. Of course you are. But <laughs> I just, I find that, uh, I find that crazy, especially in today's society and, and, and culture. Is it that- was really shocking. And it, it, the funny thing about it is I presented this work to tech companies before and often the response is sort of, wow, like there's no way my company would be doing something that egregious at our session. And oftentimes what happens is then those people go back to their companies, sit through their recruiting sessions. I, I have an example of, of one company I'm not allowed to name, but the, this is exactly what happened there. Um, they, their change agent who we were um, presenting this to went back to their company and found that they actually had a pornography reference in their recruiting sessions that she hadn't even noticed before. So I think sometimes, you know, these, these are uh, offhand jokes or things that are intended to try to connect with students, um, intended to be funny, intended to be entertaining, but, um, you, you know, the, the companies don't realize that these things are happening in their recruiting sessions. Do you think that might also be uh, an age thing as well, where some of the people might be older and not quite get the fact that this isn't cool anymore or is it a, is it does it not affect age at all with the type of people that are, are presenting these types of uh 
like you said, signals to people that maybe this isn't a place for you? I, I, yeah, I don't think it's an age thing because we, we also saw a lot of, you know, young startup founders who were doing this too, um, you know, kind of fresh out of college trying to connect. Um, they often painted what we reference in the city, sort of a fraternity-like culture saying, oh, you can come here and we have beer fridges and we play beer pong all the time and it's, it's so much like college, you know. <laughs> um, so I think, um, you know, youth was also uh, woven into it just the same way. So I, I think, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily just an age thing. Did you get a sense, uh, you know, at these recruiting sessions for these uh, American universities, um, you know, in the audience, uh, was it still predominantly men or was there a, a good mix of uh, male, female? There was a good mix. So we, um, I think it was the average was around 20%. I, I'd have to go back and look at the paper at the exact number, but um, so there was definitely fewer women because um, these were mostly electrical engineering and computer science majors. Um, although some other majors are represented too. Um, but that ranged from no women in one session to, I think one session had 74% women, which was actually a majority. So um, the sessions themselves really had a, a range. So <laughs> why why are they still, uh, you know, re- recruiting in, in this fashion? You, you'd think that, um, you know, the message that we do need to be more inclusive of, um, you know, all races, religions, and of course, sexes uh, as well. Uh, is it just so ingrained in the technology industry that it's kind of more of a male-dominated side? Yeah, you know, I think it's ingrained. I think uh, a lot of the times companies just don't know the best way to reach out. As I said, I think a lot of the um, sort of inappropriate behaviors were made in an attempt to try to connect with the audience and try to you know, paint yourself as a, a fun company, um, a company where people want to work, and they they don't realize that they're actually painting a very narrow picture of, uh, you know, or, or only appealing to a very narrow audience of what might be a fun workplace. So I think it's a lack of understanding of how to reach out to a broader audience. Because when I talk to tech companies, you know, I, I, there's there's a lot of interest in recruiting um, a broad audience, the best candidates. Um, you know, they, they, they really do want to reach a diverse audience. And so I think it's just a matter of not understanding um, you know, what's the best way? How do I seem like a fun company that's going to be relatable to a broad audience? When you finally looked at all the results uh, from this uh, study, were you or your team surprised? We were. I know it, it sounds maybe uh, sort of funny because we, we're gender researchers, so you would think nothing surprises us. But when I first set out to do this study, I remember I, I pitched the idea to my advisor and she said, well, I just don't know that you're going to find very much. I mean, these are hour-long recruiting sessions. These are going to be the most sanitized, vetted, you know, HR is going to be looking over all the content, even if the company itself doesn't have a great culture, uh, you know, these sessions are probably going to be so, you're just like all diversity, you know, all the time and, and all egregious behaviors removed. So we were pretty surprised when we went to these sessions and saw these these really obviously egregious behaviors uh, because we were we were not actually expecting that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really a testament to how how little attention is being paid uh, to, to what's actually in the content of these sessions. Uh, so I'm assuming that you, you probably gave this uh, information to the uh, to the companies. Uh, you know, has there been any, any response? There's been a great response. There's been a lot of interest. Um, I've had the chance to present this work to uh, recruiting teams at companies. Um, and, and sort of outline uh, what they should be doing differently and how to improve the sessions to welcome a diverse audience. And there's, there's been a real, um, a real great response to this and a lot of interest. So I'm, I'm hopeful 
uh, that, you know, that things will change for the better. We're talking with Allison Wynn. She is a research research associate uh, at Stanford's VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab. Uh, there's a great article uh, on Fast Company uh, by Lizzie Hill uh, that uh, went through a lot of this. I recommend you uh, check it out. Allison, thanks uh, for joining us and uh, good job on uh, the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back from the break, more apps to talk about here on the App Show. Stay tuned. You are back with the App Show. Right now, I want to uh, switch gears and actually take uh, questions from some of our uh, viewers and listeners. And don't forget, you can check out our video podcast of this program at getconnectedmedia.com. Great resource for uh, all the app show podcasts and video podcasts and also our sister show, Get Connected, which is also here on the Chorus Radio uh, Network. Plus, we've got contests going. We're giving away a Alcatel smartphone and uh, an Epson EcoTank printer as well. So uh, go to the newsletter, subscribe to our newsletter, and you're automatically entered to win uh, one of uh, these prizes, or both of these prizes for that uh, matter. Uh, Let's uh, check out uh, the inbox here. And this one's from Dorothy. I watch your global TV news segments, and thank you for your information. I am wondering about your thoughts on Photostick. I've read comments and company sites, and I'm skeptical. Is it too good to be true? So what is the Photostick? So... There seems to be a number of these available, and people probably see these on like Instagram ads, Facebook ads, those kinds of things. And they're basically a, a thumb drive that you plug into your computer, and it will use some software that you have to install to find all of your photos and then pull them out of your computer and put them on the thumb drive. So this is good for backing up your photos. Say you're about to wipe your computer, for example, or you just want to find all those photos that you downloaded. You don't know where they all have gone. Um, I'm not convinced you need to pay for this, but I'm also a nerdy guy. So if you're downloading photos from the internet and you need to find them because you've lost them or they're not on your desktop or you're not in your downloads folder, I could see maybe this would be useful. But isn't this a backup tool? Like if you've got a bunch of digital camera photos on your computer? Because I'm going to tell you something. I have something like this. I've got one of those uh, old click-free Hard drives, do you remember those? Yeah. There are hard drives, you plug in an external hard drive, you plug into a USB port, and it'll automatically back up the files you want, typically like photos and documents and spreadsheets. Yeah. But I love it because, uh, not so much anymore, but that's where I used to put all my digital camera photos onto my kitchen computer, and it would just, I plug it in, or I schedule it, and it would automatically back them all up. This is not that. No. (laughs) This the, The problem I have with this photo sticks are... It's a thumb drive, so you're limited to the amount of storage it has. Yeah. And unlike when you were using your click drive, photos, even from a smartphone, can be very large now, yeah. very high resolution, very high megapixels. Because this thing only has 64 gigabytes. Right. Plus, oh. that's not including the software that's that's on the drive as okay. well. So they're saying, you know, 64,000 high resolution photos. I'm like, I don't know about that. That's about a quarter of the number of photos I've been taking over the course of the last 15 years or so. My phone has 13,000 from the last year. So, now is this Windows? Is this Mac? Is this both? Well, they're, they're claiming it's for all PCs, MacBooks, Android, and iOS devices. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Yeah, I'm not really sure how you're jamming that into your iPhone. Right. Um, so, I, so, here's the question. Like, is this uh, a good value? And I think to your point... Depending on how you use your computer, this could be a good value for you. So really, what are we going to recommend here? I think recommending uh, some better photo practices. 
right? Yes. So if you are on Android, chances are that you're in the Google ecosystem, right? And you've got Google Photos. Uh, Google has a really great automated backup service, right? And you get a certain amount of gigabytes free per year. Can we all just agree that paying for a little bit more storage online so you don't have to worry about maintaining your photos is probably a good deal? And, and this is the same thing with iOS. People balk at the fact that Apple gives you five gigs for free, but you you just bought a 128 gigabyte iPhone. Yeah. So to spend a little bit more money and it's literally a couple of dollars a month. Yeah. Uh, less than the cost of a Starbucks. Yeah. To back up your entire life. I don't know how many times people have asked me, how can I get my photos? My phone got wiped or broken or something like that. And I'm like, you can't. They're yeah. gone because you didn't have a backup. And so actually speaking to iOS, I've got iCloud backup, right? And it's about $15 for the family plan for two terabytes. And there are four of us on this thing. And I think we're using maybe 400 gigabytes versus that 64 gig card. You know, that $12 a month actually starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And the fact that I never have to worry about backing this stuff up between my iPhone, my Mac, uh, between my iPad. And again, you know, I'm, I'm giving you the example from iOS here, but for our Android folks out there, you've got just as good of a service available from Google with Google Photos. Now, if you've got Microsoft Office, for example, and you've got that OneDrive, one terabyte subscription, you can use Windows Photos to back this stuff up. So if you're, if you're that type of person that still likes to sync their phone to their computer, sure, absolutely. So would but, this be a good value? Um, if you've got photos is, how that much are you... They? Good question. Good question. I hear they're 50% off today. <laughs> Yes. If you've got photos that you think are kind of lurking around in your computer, it wouldn't be a bad idea to get this thing and maybe run it once, maybe share it around to friends and family members. But the moment that you get those pictures back, load them into photos on your Mac or into Google Photos or into photos on your Windows PC and sync that thing to the cloud. Well, and on, and, and on uh, OS ten. Apple has all the tools built in, but you can also install the Google one as well mm -hmm. on your Mac or your PC, and you can make it automatically back up all of your stuff yeah. that way too. So, so they have desktop clients, they have uh, smartphone clients. They pretty much got you covered. Yeah. I don't think you need this. And well, it's $78 uh, US. US. So that's a hundred bucks Canadian. Yeah. So, so shipping and everything else. Maybe here's the thing. If you think you've lost photos on your on your computer, you don't know where they are, this might be a good value, right? Being able to go and look for this stuff yourself, probably not easy, especially if you're asking this question, right? You're feeling a little bit nervous about yeah. it. I, I would recommend though, there's so many cloud services today. If you've got Amazon Prime, you've got free Amazon photos. Yeah. Right? You can back up all the, the photos on your computer. Yeah, I mean- So it, you just point it to the, the folder where your photos are and it backs up to the cloud. So no matter what happens to that computer, whether it crashes or burns down uh, or melts, they're still up in the cloud. Yeah, and I mean, the, the problem here, I think, is that, it, again, if you have lost your photos on your computer, you're not sure where they are, good way to find it. Here's the thing, it's 78 bucks US, use it yourself, sync those photos to Amazon or Google or Apple, and when you're done, hand it off to a friend and get them to give you 10 bucks for it and pay it forwards. That's a good there. idea. Yeah. So, maybe, is your answer. <laughs> use the cloud. I would say use the cloud. Use the cloud. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back here on the App Show, it's John's favorite app of the week, and it is pretty cool. Uh, it's from Microsoft, and we'll help you with math. Ooh. And we all need help with math. You're listening to the App Show here on the Course Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here with John and Graham. We have uh, one more segment here and one more app. And John, this is your pick of the week. This is a really cool app I stumbled across by accident this week. It's called Microsoft Math Solver. 
that's really important to know because I was looking for this on the App Store and there's lots of other math related apps, lots of Microsoft apps, but you need to say Microsoft Math Solver. What this does, which is really incredible, it allows you to scan and solve math problems using your smartphone's camera. You can actually draw uh, equations on the screen and it doesn't just give you the answer, it actually shows you step-by-step -step explanations of how you get the answers. Oh, come on. You know, back in my day, <laughs> I, I had such a hard time with math, especially, you know, later in high school and into university with calculus. And, you know, I wish I had something like this. Don't we all? I mean, this thing works with algebra. It works with elementary math. So arithmetic, uh, complex numbers, a whole bunch of other things I don't even understand. Calculus, statistics, word problems. Just shut up now. Like, <laughs> and you're, you're making me sad. It uses artificial intelligence to actually understand your handwriting and then convert it into text. And it shows you instantly that it's converted it properly and understood the equation. I tried writing this really simple math. You're still talking. A couple different ways. <laughs> and it worked. And I was shocked how well it worked. I, I owe you lunch at this point. Because um, <laughs> I've, I've started taking another bachelor's degree in astronomy. And I'm doing better in math than I did 20 years ago. But there's still those moments where I'm looking at it going, I just don't know how to get there. You've just saved my life. The other cool thing is it actually has some videos built in to sh help you understand the math that you're having problems with too. Lunch anywhere you want, man. <laughs> Done. And everyone okay. else, please get off Mike's lawn. Yeah. The name of the uh, app again is the Microsoft Math Solver. Yes. And it's for, free. Of course it is. I love it. Thank you, Microsoft. Okay. Don't forget to check out our website, getconnectedmedia.com. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get entered into two amazing contests. One for a Epson EcoTank printer. This thing is phenomenal. It's got like two years of ink that comes with it. You never have to change a cartridge in those years. When you run out, you just buy new bottles and it's super cheap. Plus an Alcatel smartphone. Nice. Yeah, it's like Christmas. <laughs> this is Mike, John, and Graham signing off for the app show. I want to thank Stephen, uh, AJ, and Christina for helping put it all together. See you next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.